Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture was given by Father Paul B. Murray, Professor of Theology at the Angelicum University in Rome, and is entitled, At the Threshold of Wonder, Poetry and Religion, Friends or Foes? Good afternoon. Over the years, I've been humbled and uh, honored with uh, uh, words of unexpected tribute before I give a talk, but I've never been compared to the introducer's wife before. This is a <laughs> <laughs> truly humbled by that. Uh, thank you, Paul, very much. Uh, before I, I begin, I'd like to confess to a puzzled and yet delightful bewilderment of my own. As it happens, as Paul said, I was born in Newcastle, County Down, and to get here yesterday, I flew into Newcastle, and my name, of course, is Paul Murray, and I am here at the invitation of Paul Murray, and given these odd coincidences, I almost feel as if I'm a protagonist in a short story by George Louis Borges. <laughs> Am I the real Paul or the fictional Paul? <laughs> and is this international conference perhaps that alternative universe I've been reading about for years now. Whatever may be the scientific basis for that particular theory, one thing I think is certain, literature, great literature, provides us with alternative universes, with worlds more real, it sometimes feels, than the world we happen to be in just now. It's no wonder, therefore, that we find ourselves drawn to attend a conference um, such as this. I am honored and uh, really delighted to be one of your speakers here. And of course, I'm hugely grateful to the manifestly real Paul D. Murray for breathing temporary happy life into this fictional Paul. Um, the title, At the Threshold of Wonder, Poetry and Religion, Friends or Foes? Threshold of Wonder. That phrase immediately brings to mind images and incidents from the lost everyday world of my own childhood, that illiterate world of innocence and adventure prior to education. But it also brings to mind many fine statements from the literate world of philosophy, theology, and poetry, lines and texts of startling insight and beauty to which over time as a young adult I was happy to be introduced. One of the great wisdom texts I remember is a passage from St. Thomas Aquinas's commentary on Aristotle's metaphysics. I cite it here because it brings together in easeful concord all three disciplines, philosophy, theology, and poetry. Thomas writes, because philosophy arises from wonder, it is evident that the philosopher is in a sense a lover of myths and fables, something characteristic of poets. The first to deal with the principles of things in a mythical way, such as Perseus and certain others, 
who were the seventh sages, were called theologizing poets. Now, the reason why the philosopher is compared to the poet is that both are concerned with wonders. For the fables with which poets are concerned are composed of wonders, and likewise philosophers find themselves moved to philosophize because of wonder. A passage worth setting beside this text from Aquinas is the following brief entry in a journal written two centuries later by the artist Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci is, of course, an artist in the strict sense of the word, but he is also, if judged merely by the evidence of this passage alone, a fine artist of words, indeed something of a poet. The admiratio, the wonder evoked by the beauty and terror of the unknown, has seldom been described with such simplicity and such power. Drawn by my eager wish, desirous of seeing the great confusion of the various strange forms created by ingenious nature, I wandered for some time among the shadowed cliffs and came to the entrance of a great cavern. I remained before it for a while, stupefied and ignorant of the existence of such a thing, with my back bent and my left hand resting on my knee and shading my eyes with my right, with lids lowered and closed, and often bending this way and that to see whether I could discern anything within. But this was denied me by the great darkness inside. And after I had stayed a while, suddenly, there arose in me two things, fear and desire. Fear because of the menacing dark cave and desire to see whether there, whether there were any miraculous thing within. It is precisely this, this experience of passive awe and wonder which awakens in the poet, according to Auden, the desire to express that awe in a rite of worship or homage. In the case of poetry, he tells us, the rite is verbal. It pays homage by naming. In the case of philosophy, the rite, it seems natural to add, is intellectual. It pays homage by thinking, by profound reflection. But what are we to say of theology? The vision of the theologian, man or woman, is inspired first and last by divine revelation, the task demanding adherence to certain revealed truths about God. So unlike poetry and unlike philosophy, theology, it would seem, begins not so much in wonder, but rather in a kind of humble, obedient surrender. This idea, this statement, contains a truth that's undeniable, nevertheless. It fails to take into account the fact that what faith attain, attains to, the faith in this case of the theologian, is not something merely second-hand, truths about God, but rather the reality and wonder of the divine presence itself. St. Gregory Nazianzen, in one of his most memorable poems and prayers, describes something of the intimate, profound shock provoked by that divine presence. Gregory is clearly stunned by the unspeakable mystery confronting him. 
One has the impression, reading the work, that within the prayer, in terms of both form and content, philosophy, theology and poetry all come together. The saint, the author of the work, is clearly someone who has entered already into the dark cave of the divine mystery. And there, in a rapture of knowing and not knowing, in a, great, in a state of graced bewilderment, he exclaims, O you who are beyond anything, what hymn could tell about you? What language? No words can express you. What could our mind cling to? You are beyond any intelligence. Only you are unutterable, for all that is uttered comes from you. Universal desire, universal groaning calls you. For all beings, you are the end. You are all thoughts, and you are none of them. You are not one sole being. You are not the totality of beings. Yours are all the names. And how will I call you? You, the only one who cannot be named. Have mercy, O you who are beyond everything. Isn't this all that can be sung about you? In all the texts quoted so far, there is not the least hint to suggest anything other than an easeful relationship, a manifestly relaxed and potentially fruitful dialogue between the three disciplines under consideration, theology, philosophy, and poetry. All three of them standing, as it were, at the threshold of wonder, appear to be in happy concord, the best of friends. But is this, in fact, a true picture of their relationship? Can we say that the conversation between them over the centuries has always proved fruitful, the dialogue always benign? Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul, at the beginning of his 1999 letter to artists, showed not the least hesitation in speaking about what he called the fruitful dialogue between the church and artists, which has gone on unbroken through 2,000 years of history. But was John Paul perhaps exaggerating? How fruitful in reality, we need to ask, has the centuries-long dialogue between faith tradition and the world of the arts proved to be in practice, and in particular, the conversation between theology and poetry? On this topic, the contemporary poet Robert Bly, American poet, of course, makes bold to declare that far from being fruitful, the impact of the Christian religion on poetry and poets has been decidedly negative. At the core of all creativity, he believes, there is a leap from the conscious to the unconscious and back again, a leap from the known part of the mind to the unknown part and back to the known. That graced freedom, however, that long floating leap is inevitably and un unhappily interrupted, according to our poet, by the ethical and dogmatic demands of Christianity. The Christian religion from the start, Robert Bly believes, has been against the leap. This bold, astonishing claim, needless to say, does not represent the opinions of all modern contemporary poets, but neither is it the opinion of a small minority. Robert Bly's viewpoint, if read as part of the ongoing dialogue between poets and the Christian faith tradition, 
which seem to indicate that the dialogue, at least in its modern expressions, is a lot more troubled than fruitful, perhaps. But what of poets whose lives and works clearly affirm the Christian vision? What of authors such as Jared Manny Hopkins, St. Francis of Assisi, John Donne, Charles Peggy, St. Hildegard of Bingen, R.S. Thomas, Dante Alighieri, George Herbert, Anna Akhmatova, St. Simeon New Theologian, Boris Pasternak, David Jones, Patrick Kavanagh, Denise Levertor, George McKay Brown, Elizabeth Jennings, Chesla Miwash, Richard Crashaw, and T.S. Eliot. The writings of each of these authors, almost all of them well known, are clearly marked by the Christian vision, and yet not one of them allowed faith conviction to limit or diminish in any way their talent as poets. On the contrary, their achievement in verse, although often inspired by religious conviction, was never reduced to mere religious propaganda. Formed and quickened by the vision of life proclaimed in the Christian gospel, their genius flourished. One aspect of that flourishing involved now in one form, now in another, an impressive joining of artistic expression with whatever theological vision, implicit or explicit, had shaped their understanding. No matter how distinctive in practice the nature and source of their inspiration as authors, between the different demands of poetry and religion, there appeared to be no hint of enmity or suspicion. If, however, we turn our attention back to the very early centuries after Christ and to some of the first observations regarding poetry and poets made by Christian authors and theologians, we find significant elements of unease and even of antagonism. St. Clement of Alexandria, for example, contrasts the, va the vain fables of paganism with the radiant truth of the gospel. Stop your song, Homer, he exclaims. It is not beautiful. It teaches adultery. <laughs> Authors of verse he is inclined to refer to as raving poets and deceivers. And in a diatribe against the old gods of paganism, he attacks in particular the myth of the god Zeus, dismissing as unreal the many colorful disguises which the poets over the centuries had attributed to the god. Clement writes, Zeus is snake no longer, nor swan, nor eagle, nor erotic man. He does not fly as god, or ch nor chase boys, nor make love. Where then is that eagle? Where is that swan? Where Zeus? He and his wings have molded. Zeus, like Leda, is dead. Dead as a swan, dead as an eagle, as erotic man, and dead as a serpent. It was not to the denizens of Greco-Roman culture, but to the humble Christians, the least of all people, that God had revealed his final saving truth. Not poetry, therefore, not the genius of human creativity, but the witness and defense of truth was the most immediate concern and obsession of these first believers. It never seemed to occur to them, at least not for a few, a few generations, that the truth in which they so strongly believed might find in the arts, as almost nowhere else, an invaluable friend. That knowledge, however, was slow to awaken and was hampered in no small part by one aspect of their Judeo-Christian inheritance, the mosaic condemnation of graven images. 
More than a few of the early Christian fathers were natural lover of words, born readers, you could say, scholars gifted with the capacity to enjoy great literature. One of the most celebrated among them, St. Jerome, although celebrated for his asceticism, was manifestly unable to contain his enthusiasm, his passion for the work of certain pre-Christian authors, such as Horace and Cicero, Virgil and Plautus. In Rome, Jerome managed to amass a huge library of pagan literature. Obviously, the brilliance and power of that literature held him in thrall. He was, one could say, a man seduced. To a friend with arresting candor, he wrote, I was going to Jerusalem to fight for Christ, but I had not been able to dispense with the library I had collected at Rome with so much labor and care. Unhappy man that I was, I fasted and it was to prepare me to read Cicero. I spent entire nights in vigil. I shed the bitter tears that the memory of my past sins wrenched from my very entrails and it was only to pick up Plautus. Worn down at length by the unrelenting drama and pressure of this inner conflict, St. Jerome fell seriously ill. He seemed, in fact, to be on the point of death. It was just then, when the fever was at its height, that he had an extraordinary dream. They were getting ready to bury me, for my body was so icy cold that the only place where the breath and the heat of life could be felt was my still warm breast. It was then that all of a sudden I was caught up in an ecstasy. I was hailed before the court of the judge and I saw a light so dazzling that I did not dare to lift my eyes from the ground where I was lying. They asked me my religion. I am a Christian, I answered. You lie, replied he who was on the bench. You are a Ciceronian, not a Christian. I held my tongue at once. He had ordered that I should be flogged, but my conscience hurt me more than the blows. I started to cry out and to beseech him, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, mercy. My appeal rang out between the lashes of the whip. Then those who were present fell prostrate before the knees of the judge and begged him to pardon my youth, to grant me time to do penance for my errors, even though he resumed the well-deserved punishment later, if ever I went back to reading the literary works of the pagans. As for me in such a perilous pass, I was ready to promise far more. I took an oath by the name of the judge. Lord, if ever I own profane books again, or if I read them, it will mean that I have denied you. Upon this oath, they dismissed me. I came back to earth. To everyone's surprise, I opened my eyes. They were bathed in tears. At this point, as if anticipating our skepticism, Jerem makes bold to declare, this was not one of those empty nightmares of which we are sometimes victims. On the contrary, on coming back to consciousness, his shoulders, he tells us, were black and blue. What's more, he writes, I could still feel the bruises when I woke up, adding, since that day I have studied the divine works with the same assiduity with which I used to read those of men. Well, that would seem to be that, a new and complete conversion of life. Out with Virgil, out with all the literary works of the pagans, out with the poets, and yes, out with the dazzling texts of Cicero and Horace. An inner eruption of some kind had clearly taken place, a veritable shaking of the foundations. 
There was now a new radical focus on the study of sacred scripture. But so strong was the pull of imaginative literature, with the passing of a number of years, we find Jerem back reading Virgil as before, this time at Bethlehem, and happily also reading and teaching Cicero. Needless to say, in the intervening period, he had remained a devoted student of divine works, a student like no other of his generation, but he was also now once again a student of the so-called profane works of the pagans. Our great ascetic was back with the poets. This complete volte face, this conversion within a conversion, did not go unnoticed in the wider world. A certain Rufinus Tyrannius, once a close friend of Jerome, but now a mortal enemy, openly taunted the saint with the scandalous way in which he had perjured himself. In response to this accusation, Jerome declared, and without it seemed the least blush, if Rufinus is attacking me on account of a dream, let him note the teaching of the prophets. We should not believe in dreams. <laughs> Adultery committed in a dream no more condemns a man to hell than martyrdom in a dream assures him of heaven. How many times have I not dreamed that I was dead and buried? How many times have I not felt myself flying through the air, crossing land and sea over hill and dale? People, when fast asleep, drink oceans of water in their thirst, and they awake with burning and parched throats. And you expect me to keep a promise made in a dream? <laughs> However we understand the sentiments expressed in this remarkable passage, one thing is clear. St. Jerome is now experiencing, as a committed Christian, a new sense of freedom, a new confidence with regard to secular literature. From this point on, in fact, we find him quoting texts from pagan authors, poets among them, with increasing frequency. Harsh critics of St. Jerome, such as Rufinus, would no doubt judge this new spirit of acceptance, this new ease, as a form of betrayal, a final succumbing to the glamour of the pagan world. But such critics would be mistaken. What the change represents is, in fact, a dawning realisation on the part of Jerome that what was strong and beautiful in the literature of the pre-Christian world is not in any way negated by the truth of the gospel. In time, as the logic of incarnation impressed itself more and more on the minds of Christian thinkers, that acknowledgement, that recognition of the elements of truth and beauty present in the work of non-Christian artists and poets became almost the accepted norm among believers. A point had been reached at last when what Pope John Paul called the fruitful dialogue between the arts and Christianity had begun in earnest, a dialogue that would in time blossom and flourish beyond all expectation. A positive assessment of the value and attractiveness of the poet's use of pagan myths and metaphors can be found in the work of Meister Eckhart, the Dominican preacher and mystic of the 14th century. Eckhart writes, all the ancient theologians and poets generally used to teach about God, nature, and ethics by means of parables. The poets did not speak in an empty and fabulous way, but they intentionally and very attractively and properly taught about the natures of things divine, natural, and ethical by metaphors and allegories. This is quite clear to anyone who takes a good look at the poet's stories. The fact that Poetry, and indeed all the creative arts, 
by the imaginative use of metaphors and allegories, can reveal critically important truths about human life, is something happily taken for granted in the modern period. The Irish poet Seamus Heaney writes, It is precisely this masquerade of fictions and ironies and fantastic scenarios that can draw us out and bring us close to ourselves. The paradox of the arts is that they are all made up and yet allow us to get at truths about who and what we are or might be. Unquote. That, of course, is a fundamental insight well expressed. The world of literature, however, did not have to wait for the modern or contemporary period for this truth to be acknowledged and given flesh. Already in the High Middle Ages, a number of Christian writers and poets had discovered different ways in which a masquerade of fictions and fantastic scenarios could be made to serve the communication, not only of ordinary truths about ourselves, but of visionary and theological truths. And by far the most notable of these poets was, of course, the author of the Divina Commedia, Dante Alighieri. I know of no poem in any tradition which contains such a wealth of theology, ranging from expressions of devotion, both personal and practical, to the highest forms of speculation. And yet it remains, first and last, a work of imaginative genius. Here, poetry and theology, we can say, come together and create not only a rare masterpiece of literature, but a work acknowledged universally as probably the greatest poem that has ever been written. When in the third part of the Commedia, the Paradiso, Dante the Pilgrim finally arrives at the highest, most sacred place of all, and stands face to face with the Holy Trinity, the wonder is so great, the mystery so immense, he knows that he will never afterwards be able to find adequate words to communicate the experience. What then I saw is more than tongue can say. Our human speech is dark before the vision. The ravished memory swoons and falls away. In the same canto, several stanzas later, Dante does attempt to express something of the astonished awe he felt when beholding the divine vision. Here one might expect that this most exalted moment in the Commedia, he will make reference to some image or event from the Christian tradition, some telling religious story that evokes wonder. Instead, however, the image employed is that of the journey of the Argo, the mythical ship which carried Jason and his companions in their quest for the Golden Fleece. This journey, according to the myth, was the first attempt ever made to sail the ocean. Dante imagines the god Neptune, deep in the ocean, looking up in absolute wonder from the bed of the ocean as the shadow of the Argo passes over his head. It is by any standards an astonishing conceit and one of the most remarkable moments in the entire poem. Here, translated by John Chardy, is the relevant passage. Twenty-five centuries since Neptune saw the Argo's keel, have not moved all mankind recalling that adventure to such awe as I felt in an instant. My tranced being stirred, fixed, and motionless upon that vision, ever more fervent to see in the act of seeing. 
But oh, how much my words miss my conception, which is itself so far from what I saw that to call it feeble would be rank deception. Dante is here contemplating the Holy Trinity. And although in the stanza which follows, he begins by addressing God the Father, his attention turns almost at once to the second person of the Trinity. What most holds him in thrall is the realization that at the heart of the Godhead, at the very center of the unspeakable mystery itself, the image of Christ as man, as a human being, survives. The wondrous aureole, the circling light he sees before him, possesses not only a divine, but a truly human radiance. A coloration, as he says, painted with man's image. I fixed my eyes on that alone in rapturous contemplation. In these astonishing lines, as throughout all the stanzas of this final canto, the poet in Dante and the theologian, far from being at odds with one another, are clearly one and the same visionary genius. Reading through Canto 33 of the Paradiso, it's impossible to separate the theological intelligence at work and the sheer mastery of poetic form. Here, the theologian and the poet are unmistakably friends, not foes. The achievement of the Divina Commedia was made possible by the individual genius of one man, Dante Alighieri. That goes without saying. However, genius alone is not in this case the only determining factor. The masterpiece that is the Commedia would never have been produced if Dante's own vision of life, including his religious and theological convictions, had not been shared by the society in which he lived. Dante's most fundamental beliefs were the beliefs of an entire culture. There was, we can say, a pre-existing poem, a Christian myth to which people gave instinctive and unquestioned assent. It was for Dante's contemporary readers, therefore, the most natural thing in the world to enter imaginatively into his religious and theological vision. Nowadays, however, the situation has changed. The Christian vision, the Christian myth, no longer enjoys the support of the dominant culture. The once revered images and symbols of Christian faith are no longer the shared inheritance of the majority of readers, a fact which presents, of course, an enormous challenge for the poet who happens to be a Christian believer. In an age dominated by secularism, how can the religious artist or poet find imaginative expression for core Christian beliefs? Already by the 16th and 17th centuries, poets and artists of profound faith conviction found themselves facing an enormous challenge. John Donne, for example, writing in a letter to one of his friends about his attempt to write religious verse, remarked, You know my uttermost when it was best, and even then I did best when I had least truth for my subjects. In this present case, there is so much truth as it defeats all poetry. In the 20th century, T.S. Eliot betrayed a similar unease at one point when working on the composition of what is arguably the greatest Christian poem of the century, Four Quartets. In the draft of his third quartet, Eliot chose to alter a particular passage, considering it, quote, rather too heavily loaded theologically. This hesitation had nothing to do with a lack of conviction. It represented rather a desire on the part of Eliot to write a poem and not a piece of artless religious testimony. 
Eliot knew well that in the modern age, theological conviction, being no longer supported by a structure or scaffolding of belief accepted by most readers, could very easily come across as a kind of dogma with palpable designs on the reader, mere propagandist verse. This, this cultural reality presented a tough challenge, and the situation was further complicated by the fact that religious conviction, which had once been regarded with instinctive respect, had increasingly come to be viewed in the West as a kind of fundamentalism. Christianity, instead of being identified with the exuberant humanism it has supported for centuries, was now unhappily identified in the minds of many with the grim, life-denying traditions of Puritanism and Jansenism. Jansenism. Even though Jansenism was roundly condemned by the Catholic Church, certain theological ideas, truly poisonous notions, remained in circulation in different parts of Europe for many years after the condemnation. And that, in part, explains the unhappy relationship which developed in the 20th century in Ireland between creative writers on the one side and the Catholic religion on the other. It's possible that of late this relationship has begun to improve, but there are no grounds for complacency. The history of distrust and repression rooted in the distorted thinking of the past has left its mark. Today, the majority of Irish writers and poets still tend to be wary of the official church and of its dogma. Although not foes exactly, neither can they be described as the best friend. Protest, enlightened protest against unhappy and repressive forms of religion, has over the centuries found expression in many different kinds of eloquence and bravery and in many different voices. Some of these voices are linked forever with straightforward condemnatory speech in the form of either prose or verse. But there are other voices, other forms of protest, no less effective. And not least among them are the bright, subtle voices of humor and satire, of hard-hitting caricature, and of irrepressible playfulness. One text, which in my opinion stands out in this regard, is a passage from a 14th century Welsh poet, David Ap Gwilym. It records an encounter between the poet and a religious friar, in which the friar, fortunately not a Dominican but a Franciscan, <laughs> the friar not only expresses suspicion of the craft of verse, but actually dismisses it out of hand. The poet had gone to the priest to confess his sins, and he explained to the priest that he was a sort of poet. His confession came to this, he was hopelessly in love with a beautiful girl, but his love had found no response. I had, he said, neither profit nor reward from my lady, only that I loved her long and lastingly and languished greatly for her love, and that I spread her fame throughout Wales and failed to win her for all that, and that I longed to have her in my bed between me and the wall. <laughs> the friar, clearly scandalized, immediately announced that the poet must immediately abandon the writing of verse. <laughs> if not, he would face a harsh judgment. Make less the punishment on the day that will come. It would profit your soul to desist and to be silent from your poems and busy yourself with your beads. Not for poems and verses did God redeem man's soul. You minstrels, your art is nothing but jabber and vain noises and incitement of men and women to sin and wickedness. The onslaught was harsh and unrelenting, but the poet, holding his ground, answered 
the mouse-colored friar, his phrase, with a few sentences of wit and wisdom, declaring, God is not so cruel as the old folks say. God will not damn a soul of a gallant gentleman for loving woman or maid. Three things are loved throughout the world. Woman, fair weather, and good health. <laughs> a woman is the fairest flower in heaven beside God himself. Therefore, it is not strange that one loves girls and women. From heaven comes good cheer, and from hell every grief. Song gladdens the old and young, sick and whole. I must needs compose poems, just as you must preach. And it is as proper for me to go wandering as a minstrel, as it is for you to beg arms. Are not hymns and church sequences only verses and odes? And the psalm of the prophet David are but poems to blessed God. God does not nourish man on food and seasoning alone. Time has been ordained for food and a time for prayer, a time for preaching and a time to make merry. Song is sung at every feast to entertain the girls and paternosters in the church to win the land of paradise. So, yes, religion has the task of alerting everyone to the seriousness of life, but it should not, the poet insists, negate the immediate joys and pleasures of life. A glad house, he declares, means a full house. A sad face comes to no good. And again, though some love piety, others love good cheer. Few know the art of sweet poetry, but everyone knows his paternoster. Therefore, scrupulous friar, it is not song that is the greatest sin. Three centuries later, this time in Ireland, a no less impressive protest was made against clerical opposition to the making of verses. This time, however, the mood of the protest, far from being one of playful exuberance, was of an almost Dantean ferocity. The protest, in the form of a poem, was composed by the Dominican friar and poet Podrigin Hakeid, one of the four leading Irish poets of the 17th century. Hakeid was abroad when news reached him that the clerical establishment in Ireland had banned the friars from writing songs and poems. The Franciscan and Dominican friars are wandering all over the country writing songs and verses, hopefully about the gospel, but in any case, it created opposition. The response of the friar hearing the condemnation of the writing of poems was immediate. Seldom, I would say, has unspeakable rage been more successfully transmuted into verse. Here are a few stanzas. I will not spring at the flank of their argument, now that the time is past, when I could utter each thought erupting from the scope of my mind when the edge of my intellect was a thing to fear, showering with no loss of pliant force into the general flank of those arrogant priests or down on top of their bald malignant skulls, a hard, sharp fistful of accomplished darts. I will stitch my mouth up with a twisted string and say no word about their mean complaining merely condemn the herd of narrow censors and the hate they bear my people. Oh, my God! <laughs> Taking into account the witness of all the voices we have heard so far, it's clear that the relationship between Christianity and the arts has been at times decidedly complex and uneasy, a pattern which has also characterized the relationship between theology and poetry. That said, however, it's important not to lose sight of the quite unique and indeed overwhelmingly positive impact made by the Christian faith on all the creative arts, 
on poetry, music, sculpture, painting, etc. An influence, a force for creativity unparalleled in the history of Western civilization. Few people have written with more conviction and insight in this matter than the 20th century Russian poet Osip Mandelstam. In one of his essays, Mandelstam makes bold to declare, Our entire 2,000-year-old culture, thanks to the marvellous charity of Christianity, is the world's release into freedom for the sake of play, for spiritual joy, for the free imitation of Christ. Christianity adopted a completely free relationship to art, which no human religion either before or since has been able to do. There is no way to sufficiently emphasize the fact that European culture owes its eternal, unfading freshness to the mercy of Christianity with respect to art. Unquote. Part of the freedom enjoyed after the incarnation by the Christian artist is the freedom to absorb influences from sources foreign to the Christian religion, while at the same time holding fast to the truth heard from the beginning. For the poet, it is a task of transformation, an invitation to salt with Christ's salt, the partial but manifestly radiant truths encountered in non-Christian literature and mythology. In this regard, no one showed greater freedom as a creative artist than Dante Alighieri. But Dante is not unique. The daring openness, the surprising grace of welcome to what is clearly foreign and unfamiliar, both manifest qualities of his work, are not only Dantean gifts, but qualities which have characterized Catholic Christianity in general and the innumerable works of art which it has inspired. My principal concern up to this point has been to explore under the rubric of wonder the nature of the relationship between Christianity and the arts and between theology and poetry. This has necessitated making reference to a number of different texts in different worlds. Now, by way of conclusion, I'd like to draw attention to a work which relates directly to our topic and which happens to be one of the finest literary achievements of medieval Ireland. It's entitled The Frenzy of Sweeney. Early, I quoted Aquinas saying that the fables which the poets are concerned are composed of wonders, and frenzy is nothing if not a story of wonders. Sweeney's tragic story begins when, cursed by an angry cleric called Ronan, he is condemned to fly around Ireland as an outcast in the shape of a bird. Exposed to snow and rain and to every cold gust of wind, he becomes the bird man. Quote, a shape that flutters from the ivy to shiver under a winter sky, to go drenched in teams of rain and crouch under thunderstorm. A haunted and hunted outsider and excommunicate, Sweeney is at the same time a visionary poet, a representative figure of the artist, according to Seamus Heaney, displaced, guilty, assuaging himself by his utterance. My life is steady lamentation that the roof over my head has gone, that I go in rags, starved and mad, brought to this by the power of God. At one point, with terrible poignancy, he declares, I have endured purgatories since the feathers grew on me. My cut feet, my drained face, winnowed by a sheer wind and miserable in my mind, unsettled, panicky, astray, I coursed over the whole country, never to hear a human voice, to sleep naked every night up there in the highest thickets, to have lost my proper shape and looks, a mad scuttler on mountain peaks, a derelict, doomed to loneliness. Poets are often accused of speaking about nature in a sentimental way, 
but there's nothing whatever sentimental about Sweeney's bright, sharp lyrics. The voice we hear in the frenzy has almost no parallels in Western literature. It's the voice of a man condemned, and yet also somehow blessed to live out in the open. A poet, a singer, compelled to explore states of thought and feeling beyond the ordinary spectrum. Mad Sweeney's is a language, a music with no protective cover, a poetry in Heaney's phrase, piercingly exposed to the beauties and severities of the natural world. The morns are cold tonight. I was born at the foot of the morns, so I'm very struck to find the morns mentioned. The morns are cold tonight. My station is desolate. No milk or honey in this land, snow fields, gusting wind. In a sharp branched holly tree, exhausted, nothing on me, chilled to the bone every night, I camp on the mountain summit. Eventually, Sweeney is welcomed and finds himself befriended by a compassionate monk called Moling. Sweeney's story, Moling realizes, is so unique and so remarkable, it deserves to be recorded. Accordingly, Moling encourages Sweeney to return often to the monastery, and he takes care to see that the poor Sweeney is properly fed, etc. Official religion at the beginning of Sweeney's story had been poorly represented by Ronan the priest. But here at the end, Sweeney finds in Moling a man, a priest, wonderfully kind. But in the eyes of Moling, Sweeney is no mere object of charity. From the beginning, he recognizes in the crazed visionary um, the man standing before him, a spirit, a genius that commands respect. Then speak to us of hidden things, Maling says to Sweeney. Give us tidings of the Lord. Our attention has been focused almost exclusively on the anguish experienced by the mad naked birdman, but that very nakedness of his, that unprotected exposure to the natural world, resulted at times in moments of contemplative stillness and sheer joy. What we find therefore in the frenzy are not only lyrics of bitter and happy lament, but also poems of bright observation, lyrics of manifest delight. The alder is my darling, all thornless in the gap, some milk of human kindness coursing in its sap. The blackthorn is a jaggy creel, stippled with dark sloes, green watercrest and thatch on wells where the drinking blackbird goes. Sweetest of the leafy stalks, the vetches strew the pathway, the oyster grass is my delight, and the wild strawberry. These lines and others like them contain a beginning sense of gratitude and wonder, a revelation of piercing beauty, a manifest joy in the natural world, all of which come together to form the poet's gift to Moling. It's no surprise, therefore, to hear the following words of acknowledgement spoken by Moling after the sudden death of the bird man. Standing beside his grave, Moling exclaims, the man who was buried here is cherished indeed. How happy we were when we walked and talked along this path, and how I loved to watch him yonder at the well. It's called the madman's well because he would often eat its watercress and drink its water, and so it's named after him. And every other place he used to haunt will be cherished too. Here there is no enmity, but rather a revelation of deep and lasting friendship something which in the final lyric, voiced for Moling, becomes even more manifest. Allow me now to bring 
this long meandering reflection on religion and poetry, friends or foes, but reading for you this superb lyric written so many centuries ago. I am standing beside Sweeney's tomb, remembering him. Wherever he migrated in flight from home will always be dear to me. Because Sweeney loved Len Balcom, I learned to love it too. He'll miss the fresh water streams tumbling down, the green beds of watercress. He would drink his sup of water from the well yonder we are called the madman's well. Now his name keeps brimming in its sandy cold. I waited long, but knew he'd come. I welcomed, sped him as a guest. With holy viaticum, I limed him for the Holy Ghost. Because Sweeney was a pilgrim to the stoop of every well and every green-filled, crash-topped stream, there waters his memorial. I ask a blessing by Sweeney's grave. His memory flutters in my breast. His soul roosts in the tree of love. His body sinks in its clay nest. Thanks.